to remind everyone that in your bulletins we have these sheets for you. They're just kind of the, an outline of the sermon. There's some questions there. If you're one of those people who like to interact with what's happening, if you have questions or ideas you want to write down, I encourage you to do that. Write that down. If you want to then talk with me later, that'd be great. Today we find ourselves in Caesarea Philippi, or at least in one of the areas, one of the villages around it. Caesarea Philippi was this city that, that was named after Caesar. See, Herod, he attributed this, this city to Caesar, to Augustus Caesar. It was a tribute to him. But also, too, then his son Philip refurbished the town. And they made a temple in this place to Caesar, to worship Caesar. You see, in those days, they used to worship the emperor. It was something, I think, this sort of crazy, narcissistic thing that emperors would do is that they try to get everyone to worship them. So it's in this place, and then Caesarea Philippi is actually built on another city where they also worship Pan and Baal, these other gods. We see, Jesus comes to this place, and I don't think it's by accident. This is not a Jewish town. This is more of a Gentile town. This is more where all the world, all, the, all these various religions and people, they all sort of coalesce right in this spot. And Jesus comes to this place, and he says, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This question is a watershed moment in the Gospel of Mark. This question, in a way, it divides the Gospel of Mark into two parts. The beginning part, people, you know, we're, we're seeing Jesus' ministry and there's different ideas of who Jesus is. The second part, from here forward, Jesus is moving toward Jerusalem. He has his face set towards Jerusalem, the sacrifice that would happen there, the, the sacrifice that he would make there, the cross. His resurrection. God's destiny for him. This is a, a dividing point. This question is a dividing point in the gospel. This question is a fundamental question of our lives. Who do you say Jesus is? Our faith is based on this question. Our lives then are based on this question as well. The way we answer this question changes everything. You see, in the first century, as we, as we read through Mark's Gospel, we see that there were lots of different ideas about Jesus. Some said that he casts out demons because he's Satan, or because he's working for Satan. It's by Satan that he drives out Satan. And Jesus says, this is ridiculous. A house divided cannot stand. Some thought he was a prophet. When, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? They said, well, some say you're John the Baptist or Elijah are one of the prophets of old. But it's interesting that some even said that he was the Christ. Some said, you are the Lord, the Son of the Most High. But you know who said those things? Demons. People who understood, or who had this spiritual idea of the world, who saw the realities beyond what everyone was apparent to. But also outsiders called him Lord. Syrophoenician woman. Gentiles. People who weren't supposed to know anything about God, they call Him Lord. They recognize Jesus for who He is. It's interesting. These things happened in that century and they still happen today. There are still many ideas about Jesus. Some people say that He's a great teacher. He taught some really, really insightful things. He taught people how to love. How to love themselves. Or, sorry, how to love other people beyond themselves. You know, he taught people how to be accepting of others. He taught people how 
to make sacrifice. I mean, look, at, he sacrificed his life. He, he shows the ultimate example of sacrifice. Willing to be crucified because he loved other people. That still doesn't quite get it, though. Some people say he was a great miracle worker. And it's true, he was. You know, he, he, he has this amazing ability to heal people, to encourage them and to bring restoration to their life. And some people even devoted, have devoted themselves to trying to understand how Jesus did it so they can do it. But they see this healing thing and they kind of miss Jesus and they focus more on the healing thing. He was a great healer, but he's more than that as well. And there are some people, really skeptical people, who, totally, who think that Jesus was just misunderstood. That he was this leader of a movement that eventually failed, but people couldn't handle it, so they invented stories about it. Pretty skeptical. But as I look at this gospel in my own life, as I see the way God has worked in my life, and as I read the gospels, as I read through history, I see that he is the Christ. That Jesus is the Christ. Just as Peter said, he is the Messiah. And it's interesting, sometimes people don't, well, did did he ever say that? Well, I think that we are supposed to hear that in the gospel. I mean, one, when Jesus is baptized, the heavens open. The heavens open, the Spirit comes down, people saw this, and the voice from heaven says, this is my Son, whom I love, in him I am so pleased. And then when Jesus is standing in front of the religious high court or the Sanhedrin, the chief priest asks him, are you, the son, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus says, I am. But he says it in this way, he says, I, I am. That's the same exact way that God responded to Moses. When Moses asked him, who, who should I tell them is sending me? He said, I, I am. Jesus says, I, I am. And you will see me seated at, the right, seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And at this, the high priest, he tore his robe. He grabbed it and he tore it apart because he, Jesus had said that he was God and he didn't believe him. He thought this was utter blasphemy. But we see Jesus confirm his identity. That he is the Son of God. That he is the Messiah. And there are some who've, who've reduced this down to a few different choices that we have. We can either say that he was a liar or a lunatic or he really was who he said he was. He was the Christ. You know, maybe he was a liar, some might say. And he really, and he, he knew he wasn't, but he tried to convince everyone. But that doesn't wash with me. Why would a person die for a lie? I mean, he knew that he was going to death and all he would have had to say was, no, you're right, you're right. I, I'm, I'm not this person you said I was. Okay, let's just forget about the whole thing. They just wanted him to go away. But it's because he confirmed that he was the Christ that they crucified him. Maybe he was a lunatic, some might say. Maybe he really thought he was, but he wasn't. But when you look at the Gospels, you look at what he did, the things that he taught, the lives that he has changed, the millions of lives that he has changed throughout history and even on a daily basis today, this is not the, the life of a lunatic. The things that he said, the things that were deep and have changed people's lives, these are not the words of a lunatic. This is not the ministry of a lunatic. To me, this says one thing. This leaves one option, that he is the Christ. That he is the Son of God. That he is the one who has come to save us. And even though it's a surprising way that he's done it, 
None of us would have expected it this way. That God would come in all of His power. He would come as a person. And He would suffer. And He would let people to beat Him and abuse Him and torture Him and then hang Him on a cross that He might die so we could live. Like This is completely surprising the way God acts. And yet this is the truth. This is the reality that we benefit from. This is the reality that our lives are based on. This is the fundamental question of our faith. Who do you say Jesus is? The way we answer that changes our life. The way we answer that is foundational to our faith. But you see, the difficult thing, the difficult thing is that He is not the sort of Savior that we would pick for ourselves. Instead, He's committed to doing it God's way. He's committed to doing this God's way. He's not going to fall prey to our power games, to our desire for Him to make life easy. You see, Peter, he got it. He said, you are the Christ. Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. Now, that's a pretty short sentence in in the Bible, but that is a huge step. Because I'm not sure if we understand what it was like for him to say, you are the Christ in that time. You are the Mashiach, the Messiah. You see, in that time, when when Peter was saying this to Jesus, that time everyone was waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for him to change the policies of things, to be a political leader, to be a new king who would would push out all these people who were horrible rulers, who took advantage of people. They thought he was going to be this brilliant, this genius, genius military leader who was going to lead armies and finally bring justice and destroy all the wicked rulers who had, who had punished people, who had oppressed people. They thought that he was going to be, who's going to bring this, this social change to the world. So not only would the people who had tons of resources and money and power, not only they would be re- rejoicing, but everyone would. Even the lowest of the low, the poor, everyone would be rejoicing and celebrating in prosperity of God. This is what the Messiah was supposed to do. And the Messiah was supposed to change everyone's heart. That not only would He bring revival to society, but He would bring revival to people's hearts. There would be a spiritual revival. That no longer would people go their own way. No longer would they try and do their own thing, but they would return to God and everyone would be faithful and follow Him. This is Peter's understanding of Messiah, of Christ. And then Jesus goes on to teach them. He says it is necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things. To be betrayed by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. To be killed, but to rise again on the third day. And as he's saying this, Peter pulls him aside and rebukes him. This is not Peter saying, excuse me, Lord, I'm not sure that's... No, Peter rebukes him. This is more like him saying, Jesus, you're wrong. This is absolutely not the way it's supposed to be. You're supposed to be the Messiah. You're supposed to be the one that we've been waiting for to do it the way we wanted you to do it. See, this is the same word that Jesus used when He silenced the demon, when He said, demons, shut your mouth. This is the same word that Jesus used when He said, storm, be silenced. And it was quiet. Peter uses this same tone with him. The student stepping out of his place. I wish I could talk to Peter. 
I wish I could say to Peter, do you understand what you're saying? Do you understand who you're saying this to? Then Jesus rebukes Peter. Jesus says, Peter, get behind me. Get behind me, Satan. You have no idea what you have just said. You have no idea what you're trying to get me to do. Because Satan had tried this before. When Jesus was out in the desert trying to get Jesus to take the easy way, Jesus, just, just have this bread turn it, or have these stones turn into bread for you. You don't need to be starving out here. You're, you're the Son of God. Make life easier. Or I'll take you up to the top of the temple and I'll give you all of the worlds, all of everything. I'll give it to you because you're the Son of God. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to stay faithful to what my Father has called me to. And at the same point, he says the same thing to Peter. I'm going to remain faithful to what God has called me to. He says, Peter, you have the mind in mind the things of people. You don't have in mind the things of God. You're not looking at this with God's eyes. You're seeing it through human eyes. You want all the glory, but none of the sacrifice. You want life to be easy. You don't want to have to go through pain and suffering to be mature, to grow in your faith. You don't understand what God has to do here, what God is calling me to do. Peter, you don't get it. You see, this is not the way of God, this easy way, or this this way of just glory and riches. God is doing something different here. God is doing something amazing. He is still the God of glory. But it's glory that comes after sacrifice. God's glory comes in sacrificing Himself to save us. That God is more a God who journeys through pain and suffering, who takes the path through hardship and difficulty to faithfulness. That God doesn't try and always, He's not always looking for an easy way to get us out of trouble. It seems to me more often he's trying to help us navigate through difficulty, through pain and suffering in our lives, that we would grow in faithfulness, that we would grow up as Christians, that we would no longer act like children, always demanding our way, but that we would be faithful to God, that our lives would be more full. You see, God is after, he's more interested in making us holy than making us happy. Those are important things to remember. Sometimes we get it flipped around. We want, a, we want a Messiah the way we want him. We want him to do it the way we want it done. We want happiness. Holiness is great, but as long as we're happy, that's not God's primary interest. His interest is to make us holy more than it is to make us happy. You see, when we get this wrong idea about God, we begin to get the wrong idea about discipleship, about following Him. That's why, these two, that's why this question of Jesus, who do you say that I am, and his teaching on what it means to be a disciple, that's why they are right next to each other. Because they're connected. Because they're connected. If we call Jesus the Christ, if we call him Christ, that changes everything. We cannot name Jesus Christ, Savior, Messiah, and not at the same time name a new direction for our lives. If we call Jesus the Son of God, then we realize that He's calling our whole life into commitment to Him. 
Jesus said, follow me. Whoever would follow me, let them deny themselves. I don't think Jesus is talking about, you know, see where you can trim back a little. Maybe shop a little less or maybe have a little bit less things or let me not spend quite so much time on yourself. That's not what he's saying. But at the same time, he's not saying, you know, maybe try to do just a little bit more for other people. Try to be a little nicer. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, deny yourself. Your whole life belongs to Christ because he has purchased you by his blood. Your whole life is devoted to him. Every part of your life comes under Christ. Every part of our life. That's hard for us. You know, some people are able to do that. Some people, are, they respond to Christ fully. It's interesting, Dave, as you were talking today, it reminded me again of how God puts this call on people's lives. And Dave went to Africa as a missionary. He set down this, maybe this direction that he had, this idea of what his career was going to look like and what people expected of him. He set that down. He went to Bible school and he went to Africa. Some of us, God is calling us right in the place where we live. Some of us calling us not so much to go to Africa, but to be missionary, to be faithful here, right here where we live. To hold our life with an open hand, though. And what I mean by this is this willingness to set down this life that God has blessed us with. All the great blessings we have, how comfortable we are, this country we live in, even this church, these friends, and this family. To be willing to set that down, to faithfully follow Christ. If He says, I need you to come. I need you to come with me to this far place, this remote place. You need to sell everything and come with me. To be willing to do that. To be open to that. And if he's not even calling us to that, then at least to live generously. To live now, to live extremely generous. And what I mean by this is not so much the easy generosity that, that is pretty common nowadays, like, oh sure, I can give you an extra 20 bucks, I'll never miss that. Oh yeah, I can, I can give you maybe a, a few hours of my life. And... But I'm talking about this generosity that costs us something. And I sense God calling me to be generous in this situation, so much so that it means I'm going to have to go, with something, go without something in my life. That I'm giving up something in my life so that I can be generous in this other situation. I think this is the sort of generosity that Christ is calling us to, this denial of ourself. But he goes on to more. He says, deny yourself and take up your cross. And I want to ask us if we can just, if we can undo this phrase, it's just my cross to bear. You know, people are like, oh, I've got, a, I've got a, a neighbor that drives me crazy. That's just my cross to bear. Or my, my spouse, like they're, they're hard with me or something. That's my cross to bear. My kids are difficult. That, can we just set that down? Can we not say that anymore? I mean, I know people don't mean anything by that. I know they're kind of making a joke. But when, when Christ said this, Deny yourself and take up your cross. When he said this, the cross was not a joke. It was not some piece of jewelry that people wore around their neck. It was a means of execution. It was a despicable, shameful means of, dis- of, of execution. That's all it was. It was a tool to kill people. Slaves and rebels 
These are the people who were crucified. Everyone else got a better means of execution, but the worst of the worst, they were crucified. How many of you have seen the, the Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie? You know that the crucifixion, it's horrible. And horrible doesn't even do it justice. Jesus hanging there on a cross, hands nailed into the wood. Do you know that people oftentimes on a cross, they would die more by suffocation than anything? Because you had to hold yourself up to breathe. As your arms went higher, as you start to sag down, it's harder to breathe. Our diaphragm is, it struggles to even get air in your lungs. That oftentimes people died of suffocation after hours and sometimes days of hanging there. This is not some petty burden in your life. Jesus is saying, take up your cross. It's a way of saying, be ready to die for me. Be willing to die for me. So often we talk about this gospel and and the good it is. It's a life worth living for. Jesus is saying, it's also something worth dying for. Take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and be ready to die for me. And then follow me. Not just agree with my teachings, as good as that is, that's a great place to begin. He's also saying, follow me. Live the way that I lived. Take time for people who need your care. Take time to help people who need your help to give up things of your own so that you can be helpful to others. Because Jesus' life was a sacrifice. If we're going to follow him, don't be surprised when our life leads to sacrifice too. Even our very life. If we're going to call Jesus the Christ, it changes everything. It changes everything. Changes the way we live. Changes everything. But here's the good news. It's worth it. It's worth it. This new life in Christ is worth it. To give up everything to follow Him. I know this cuts against every fiber of our selfish self that calls us to, no, no, it's all about me, it's more for me, it's about my comfort. I know it cuts across the grain of that. (coughs) Jesus says, whoever tries to, to save their life will destroy it. Whoever tries to make life work for them will destroy it. And I think what he's getting at here is, we see it sometimes in people, this determination, this ferocious determination to always get further ahead to always have just a little bit more. I can't remember who it was now, but there was some uh, famous interview with, uh, with this wealthy, powerful person, and they asked him, like, how much is enough? And he said, always just a little bit more. This ferocious need to be successful. Not that there's necessarily wrong with doing things well, but when it becomes our idol, when it becomes the center of everything, when even God takes back seat to our need for stuff and success and power, This will lead to destruction. What good does it do a person to gain the whole world and still forfeit their soul? You know, I get it. I mean, 
There's, there are sometimes we've been raised in, in places where hard work is important and we start to think that hard work is the most important. The most important thing is getting ahead. I'm here to tell you there are more important things than that. I know we've been told that the resources are scarce. We've been programmed with this. There's not enough for you. Make sure you get, get what you need and even if you have what you need, make sure you get a little bit more because you never know when you'll run out. It's not true. It's not true. Jesus says, if you are willing to lose your life for Him and for the Gospel, then you will save it. Imagine that. Giving up things. Giving up all this stuff that you could have life more full. Life filled with more joy. Life filled with more peace. Life filled with more compassion. Even willing to walk with people through the hard times in their lives. Setting down all this, all this struggle for stuff that you could be free just to live life. To have life more full. This idea of life more full, I mean, it's this idea of eternity that happens you know, someday when we are dead, when we die and we, and we are with Christ. But also eternity begins the moment we believe into Jesus. This new life begins the moment we believe. I'm not saying it's easy, obviously not. But it will be filled filled with God's presence, joy when things are horrible. Joy that we'll be able to laugh and still pray to God and praise Him. And the people would say us and say, your life is miserable, what are you doing? Life filled with compassion for people. That even when things are going really well for us, that we're still concerned for others. Especially those who need help. A life when we stop thinking about that it's not so much mine anymore. That we realize that Christ bought us at a price. That He saved us at the expense of His own life. That our life is not our own anymore. That our stuff, the things that we have, they are a gift from God. Even our ability to work hard and earn them is a gift from God. But I know there are people in our, in our community, there are people who live around us who do not even have this gift. They struggle just to, just to, put, to work hard to put things together. We don't understand how blessed we are to even have that ability. But it's a gift. When we start living our life as a gift, it changes things. When it's a gift, it's, it's easier to give it away. It's easier to share it with other people. See, the more that we realize this, the more we realize that we have nothing to lose. This life that we've been given is a gift. All the blessing that God has given us in our lives, it is a gift. And when we are grateful for that, when gratitude marks our lives, that changes things. We're able to be generous because we realize that this is a gift and I'm, because it's been given to me, I want to give it and share it with others. And that changes things for us. We're able to live this life, this calm or this, this peace in life. You know, setting down this struggle and this stress to get ahead and to, to accomplish more and to do more of this or to have more of these things. When we're able to set that down, we have this calm in life, this peace, this joy. I know it's different than what we're taught. I know it's different than what most people say. But I believe it's the truth. That if we will lose our life for Christ's sake, for the gospel's sake, then we will find it. This morning, I have good news for you. Christ is calling you to follow Him.
And He's calling for your whole life. Every part of it. But it's worth it. It's worth it because you will have this new life. Life filled to the full. Life filled with hope. Not just for today, but also for your future with Christ. Your place with Him. Life filled more full. Life that won't necessarily be easy, but you will be growing as holy people. This is glorifying to God. This is good news for you this morning. Amen.